Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As you know, on Friday, a historic ruling for the United States of America, the U.S. Supreme Court in a 5-4 to four ruling um, uh, ruled for same-sex marriage uh, in all 50 states. And uh, we've uh, been hearing reaction to this through the weekend. And uh, right now we want to know what you think. What's your reaction? You can uh, join us right now at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. We're going to get reaction from the LGBT community. We'll be hearing from Derek Kitchen. We'll also be talking with State Senator Jim DeBacchus. And later in the hour... We'll have a discussion, debate, whatever you want to call it, between Lynn Wardle, who's Bruce C. Hafen, professor of law at Brigham Young University, and Clifford Roski, professor of law at the University of Utah. They're on opposite sides of the issue. We'll talk about religious liberty issues, anti-discrimination issues, and implementation issues. What does this mean for Utah and for the nation? We want to hear from you. Uh, we begin with uh, Derek Kitchen. We were... Uh, Wanting to have him on the program today, but he was not able to join us today, so our producer, Bennett Purser, caught up with him yesterday. Derek Kitchen is a gay rights activist and city council candidate in Salt Lake City. He recently married his partner, Moody Sebade, after being the namesake of the court case Kitchen v. Herbert, which in 2013 led District Judge Robert Shelby to strike down Utah's ban on same-sex marriage. It was December 20, 2013, when because of this case, hundreds of same-sex couples in Utah were able to marry. Derek Kitchen, thank you for joining us today on Access Utah. Thanks for having me. So what was last Friday like for you after you heard the news of the Supreme Court's opinion? What was that day like? Personally, it was just joyous. I was so excited to hear the news. It was exactly what I had anticipated, but it was just nice to have some finality to the whole question. Um, and so for me, it, it was just really exciting to, to have that resolved and to be able to, to celebrate. So finality, that's a good word to use after Friday's decision, um, certainly for yourself, because you've had a real journey with marriage equality starting back in 2013 when you and two other same-sex couples filed a lawsuit prompting the action that ended Utah's ban on same-sex marriage. Going back to then, I wonder what was going through your mind during that process, and what was that experience like as the trial was starting? Well, uh, my what was going through my mind uh, changed daily because it was a pretty long and drawn-out appeal uh, that we were involved in over many months. And so, you know, I went through moments of just being excited um, because we were, you know, winning uh, not only in the public opinion polls but also on the judicial level, and then a bit of anxiety as well as we awaited, you know, uh, a decision from the the first appeals court and then, you know, from the Supreme Court on October sixth. Um, but you know, it it was just um, it was an amazing experience for me to be involved in. I say that because, you know, everywhere we turned, uh, left and right, we were greeted from. Uh, strangers and friends and family alike with um, excitement and a level of just enthusiasm and appreciation for the fact that this case really kicked everything off. It was the first, you know, federal case to overturn a state ban on marriage equality. And that really led to, you know, what we saw last Friday with the Supreme Court decision. Um, and so for for that, you know, we feel really grateful to have been involved and to and to really um, play our small part in our neck of the woods here in Utah. That's right. That Utah was the first state to have had that happen. So 
when all that was happening, I remember being in Utah and hearing a lot of people before that time, people would say, Utah will probably be the last to recognize same-sex marriages or Utah will never do this. Did you ever share those thoughts or how did you react to statements like that? You know, um, I just knew that, you know, it did seem like Utah would have been the last place on earth because of, you know, the high profile role that the Mormon church and a lot of Utahns played in not only, um, you know, putting the energy behind bands like Prop 8 and Amendment 3 here in Utah, but also financing them. You know, it did kind of seem like we had an uphill battle. But, you know, the thing is, when we're speaking constitutionality, that is applicable to somebody in Louisiana, somebody in Michigan, and in Utah. So I I did believe that we had um, a case on due process and equal protection. And so that's really what um, gave me the courage to move forward with this case. Um, And, you know, again, people in Utah are accepting, and they realize that once they know somebody who's gay or lesbian, their mind changes. And so, you know, this really kicked off a conversation that we hadn't really had in Utah uh, up until this point. Um, And so, you know, things change quickly. Last Friday, you attended um, the celebration rally that evening in Salt Lake with a lot of Utah's influential activists. And how did you experience that celebration and that gathering, which in many ways was kind of celebrating something um, Utah has been celebrating for for a while now? Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of the big rally that happened in Salt Lake right after um, Proposition 8 passed in 2008. Um, and that was a much more, I, I think, angry or we were much more of a group of hurt individuals, you know, in 2008. And this year we were celebrating, you know, nationwide victory. And so I think that a lot of the same folks that were at the first rally and were at this rally last Friday, um, I think, you know, it's just amazing to see how quickly the world has changed and, and what it means to really live your authentic self and what you individually can do to change the world just by being true to yourself. As empowering as the rally was, Many of Utah's elected leaders are still upset with Friday's ruling. And I'm wondering, what do you, what is there still left to say to people who have opposing views on this issue after everything that's been accomplished, you know, going all the way to the Supreme Court? What is left to say? I don't think there's anything left to say to people. I think what's left is to lead by example, to, you know, just turn inward on yourself and, and, you know, live your own life and just be a happy person and raise your family and do what you do and let that be an example to those people who still don't get it Uh, because eventually they will come around. And I think that, you know, at this point, there's no sense in, you know, trying to force people to agree with us. Uh, It's just a matter of allowing them the space and the opportunity to see things differently. Now, um, your efforts and your fight, it's certainly had a massive impact and brought a lot of joy to so many people, you know, aiding in the Supreme Court's ruling. So what's next for you now? Where will your focus go now? Well, uh, we just got married a little over a month ago. So we're enjoying being newlyweds, Moody and I. Um, And um, this summer I am uh, campaigning for a spot on Salt Lake City Council uh, in District 4, which represents downtown and the neighborhoods just below the university. Um, So I'm hoping that, you know, I can turn my effort toward 
some other local issues that are uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, I'm a local business owner and uh, a resident of Salt Lake for many years. And so I feel like, you know, that one thing that this case, Kitchen v. Herbert, taught me was that um, I really, it made me feel empowered to use my voice to stand up for things that, that I care about and that need to be addressed. And so uh, this is a, a way for me to pivot some of my energy from LGBT rights toward uh, just more local issues and uh, quality of life concerns. All right. Well, with the Supreme Court's opinion and, you know, Utah's anti-discrimination law, where do you feel in Utah there's still work to be done when it comes to LGBTQ people? I think uh, it's clear that we need to work on uh, more visibility for the transgender community um, and more support and resources for families that are still struggling to um, accept the identity of a child or a brother or you know, a family member. Uh, we still have a very high rate of youth um, suicides, and I think that that's a critical issue that must be addressed. I think it's also really um, important that we work to strengthen the non-discrimination bill um, and do what we can to uh, just incrementally improve multiple issues for LGBT people. But, um, you know, there's still work to be done, and, and we'll work on it um, at the ground level here. All right. So... And you're finally married, um, almost two years later, right? <laughs> yeah. And how must that feel for you and your husband, Moody? It's a big sense of relief. We can uh, finally start um, imagining our life after marriage now. We are, you know, trying to figure out when is the most appropriate time for us to start a family. And um, we're looking to potentially buy a home in the next little while. Uh, we're keeping busy with our business. So um, there's a lot of work to do. And uh now we just feel like it's an opportunity for us to, to dream and to imagine our lives a little differently now. All right. Well, it sounds like you're uh, very busy and excited. So, Derek Kitchen, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Derek Kitchen today. I'm Bennett Purser with Tom Williams for Access Utah on Utah Public Radio. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. My thanks to my producer, Bennett Purser there. Uh, Derek Kitchen was to have joined us live today, but he had a scheduling conflict, uh, so Bennett was able to reach him by phone yesterday. We uh, had reaction there from from a prominent member of the LGBT community in uh, Utah. We're going to bring up next State Senator Jim DeBacchus for his reaction. And in about 10 minutes, we're uh, going to debate the issues. We'll uh, debate the opinions at the Supreme Court and uh, some of the issues and related issues. Anti-discrimination for the LGBT community, uh, religious liberties issues, and uh, implementation. And uh, we'll be talking with Lynn Wardle, who's professor of law at Brigham Young University and Clifford Roski, professor of law at University of Utah. That's coming up later in the program. We're, we hope to hear from you. What's your reaction? 1-800-826-1495. Now that you've had a weekend to process this, 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter. And we bring in next uh, State Senator uh, Jim DeBacchus. Welcome back to the program. Oh, it's always a pleasure. So your your general reaction? What was uh, well? First of all, what was the uh, what was the experience like uh, on Friday, and then then you, then the big rally on uh, Friday evening? Well, of course, personally, it was uh, it was a terrific moment, and uh, for me and my family, and for uh, so many people across the state and across the country. So it was a great moment. But I got to tell you, I, I I'm a Democrat in Utah, and I 
do know what it's like to lose. And I got to say, I, I do have and I did have sympathy for all the people that just feel differently than I do on this. And I, 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 I just want to say that the sting goes away after a while when you lose. And I know I'm a guy who gets stung a lot. So it gets better, everybody, if you disagree with the decision. Hmm. Um, I think you were quoted in the papers as saying you detected a little bit of that sting in some of the arguments being made. And I wonder, I want to get your reaction, uh, first of all, to the, the slippery slope arguments that I've been, been seeing. Oh, that gay marriage is going to lead to bestiality and uh-huh. yeah. polygamous farm animals kind of thing. I, I, you know, that's really a, um, it brings a stupor to me. It's just so absurd and so um, so ridiculous, and it is just I, I I can't even think of a I can't even think of a response because it's such a non sequitur to what the real issues are. So um, it's just crazy. What um, so setting aside bestiality, which is uh, yeah, I think we could all agree that's that's pretty ridiculous. I did see a, a you know a serious article in Politico magazine just recently. Here's the, the this person is advocating for polygamous marriage, and he says that's the next step. The, if you you know you take the the grand liberal tradition, and that should be next. Well, it, it may be. I mean, it, but it has nothing to do with um, it has nothing to do with. Uh, same-sex marriage, you know, that's a, that's an entirely different issue on its own. I mean, let's face it, the definition and the composition and uh, the view of marriage has changed and will continue to evolve. I mean, certainly we don't today believe in the Old Testament version of marriage. Um, nobody would accept um many of the edicts that were included in marriage. So you can you can go all the way from polygamy to the rules about if if your wife is barren that you should take your uh, husband's wife and there there that was the situation thousands of years ago in the Middle East and that was one set of rules and we had if you look in the 18th and 19th century where women, well, certainly in the Middle Ages, where women were property. And there were great debates on whether they had a soul or not, and they certainly were not equal partners, and and it certainly was not one man and one woman. Uh, that Things have changed, and they changed dramatically, really, in the last 20 or 30 years. So this is not something that was set in stone 10,000 years ago, and that we're trying to figure out, as Justice Scalia would, what the original intent of marriage was, it is a, it is a moving target, and it just moved toward equality and fairness, and it moved into the 21st century. Hmm. Now, some uh, I'm seeing some conservatives now embracing a libertarian position that the state should get out of the marriage business, uh, and that it should just leave that to, uh, to religion. Well, it's funny they they weren't there. Um, they weren't there last week, at least at the beginning part of last week. It, it reminds me a little bit of this black mark in Utah's history when a brave 
17-year-old at East High decided to start a gay-straight alliance because she saw so many of her LGBT friends um, who were bullied and upset and, and put upon. The school board heard about it, and a ruling was made. There is only one way you can get rid of allowing that one club to give support to LGBT kids, and that is to do away with every single club. And that homophobic school board in the 1990s in the liberal bastion of Salt Lake City for three years decided that it was better to do away with the chess club and the math club and the history club and the science club than to allow eight or nine LGBT students to meet once a week. So this idea somehow that, well, we can't have our way, we're going to take this dramatic action of ending all state marriages. And, you know, maybe it'll happen. My guess is the slings and arrows are there, and that's a kind of knee-jerk reaction, and that after cooler minds have prevailed, we're going to decide that marriage is really important in Utah, and we want to continue the traditional role uh, of marriage in, in our culture, in our society, in our state. I want to run this uh, interesting uh, statement from uh, Better Utah founder and board president Josh Cantor. He issued a, a statement uh, reacting to the Supreme Court's ruling. He says, a historic day for equality in the United States. Uh, he hails it. And then he goes on to say, unfortunately, we're not yet living in a post-racial world, and it will be some time before we're living in a post-orientation world. But we look forward to that day and hope that all Americans will work to, together toward that day. So I'm wondering what... Uh, what do you think of that? What What do you think uh, needs to happen to get to that post-orientation world, which I assume you... I've never heard it called a post-orientation world. I kind of like the phrase. Um, the truth is, in Utah today, it is perfectly, perfectly legal to put a sign in your window that says, we don't serve fags. You can put that in. It's legal. You can say... Um, we don't want your kind in our store. You can say, we, we, we refuse to provide a hotel room for you and your gay type. Or, on the other hand, same with, with, that, with heterosexuals. You know, that, that is perfectly and absolutely legal in the state of Utah. So it's a decision that the legislature is going to be faced with in this upcoming session, that is, are we a state that, um, as, as, they, as the legislature weighs out the personal freedom of a shopkeeper a, who, is, who, who has a business license from the city or from the state, weigh that shopkeeper's rights against the rights of the public not to be discriminated in the public uh, marketplace. And, and I say, you know, if you're going to the state, you're going to the city, you're holding yourself out as doing business to the public, you then have a responsibility to serve all the public. And if you have some problem with African-Americans or with Hispanics or with Mormons, um, you have a perfect right to have those disagreements. But once you take that license, from the state, you must provide service to everybody. Hmm. 
we'll see if the legislature agrees. Will you be running a, a bill on this, the next legislature? Yes. We're going to call it um, uh, the public places. Uh, in, in, previously, it had been called public accommodation, but I have found that so many people don't really understand what public accommodation means um, or uh, kind of approach it from the view of a non-discrimination in public places bill rather than public accommodation. Let's have the fight. I mean, there are there are libertarians. They were uh, and, and, and people that uh, want discrimination. They were there in the 60s. They said it was the big war cry of the South. This is our business. This is our land. Uh, the government has no right to come in and tell us that we will or will not serve um, people. And that ought to be a choice that the, the, the business owner or the, the person who owns the property should decide. Now, I say bring it on. It's a discussion worth having. What about uh, government officials? This is, I'm sure this will be continue to be debated. Uh, there's been some talk of uh, what if a government official on religious uh, belief grounds does not feel like they can issue a marriage license to a same-sex couple. Should they be able to recuse themselves, so to speak? Well, there's, there's a difference between issue a marriage license and perform a marriage, because there is nowhere in, in Utah State Code that... Um, it is a part of a job description for any job in the state, including county clerks, to actually marry people. So I think if people want to marry people or they don't want to marry people, that's their personal decision. On the other hand, on issuing of marriage licenses, that is in the code. That's one of the responsibilities of a county clerk. And if somebody, if a couple presents themselves before a county clerk and says, um, they, they meet the qualifications, the legal qualifications for a marriage license. County clerk has absolutely no right to say, well, I just disagree with you. I mean, where would that end? Could the clerk say, well, you know what? You, sir, are a little old for this young lady. I'm not issuing it to you. It offends my whatever. Or, you know what? I never thought that Hispanics and Italians should be married. I mean, where where does it end? That's part of your job description. You understood that when you took the job. That's in the code. You, whatever your personal opinions may be, keep them to yourself. That's part of your job to issue that marriage license. And you know what? If you can't do that morally, I understand. Quit your job. Go find another job where you're not called upon to break your personal uh, morality. Do you think the legislator got it right, in, at least in concept, in pairing uh, anti-discrimination bill, uh, LGBT community with a uh, religious liberties provision? Do you think that was a good, a good thing? Frankly, I don't see the, I don't see the connection, but I understand this anxiety. I understand this. Um, I understand this angst, and I was more than pleased. It's the legislative process. You know, you, you, when it works well, you sit around the table, you talk, you understand where the other side is coming from, you negotiate, and you write a bill. And then you do the process over and over and over again. So that's just 
that's just the legislative sausage making. And uh, those things were put together. I found no offense in a reaffirmation of the First Amendment, uh, religious liberties being included. As a matter of fact, um, I happen to be a strong supporter of the First Amendment. So to, to reemphasize the fact that the First Amendment exists and people have religious liberties in a non-discrimination uh, in housing and employment was really fine. There, there's going to be, I guess, in all states or most states, including I would assume in Utah, there's going to be questions about implementation. I assume that the legislature coming up in January is going to be going to be talking about implementation of this ruling. I don't think so. I mean, I think we're pretty much implemented. Uh, I'm yeah. hearing in uh, Alabama and Mississippi and certain counties in Texas where um, redneck county clerks are waiting for some big ruling. And they're even saying that it's unconstitutional. But <laughs> the Supreme Court, you can say a lot of things about a Supreme Court ruling, and believe me, I do occasionally. But you cannot say that a, a, a ruling from the Supreme Court is unconstitutional, because clearly, by definition, what they say is constitutional. So I don't think it's an issue at all in Utah implementation. Mm-hmm. I think we, uh, following Judge Shelby's ruling, uh, and the uh, Tenth Circuit concurrence, we have been dealing with uh, the licenses and with marriages, and I have performed many gay marriages, and it is simply not an issue and has never been um, since, the, since the first few days when there were some hiccups. So mm. I think we're just fine. Uh, finally, I wonder where, where you think, if you think of the arc of the gay rights movement, is the ruling on Friday, is that the end of the beginning? Is that the middle? Is that the end? Where, uh, where are we on the, on the trajectory? You know, we, we, we are at an interesting moment. And there are fights ahead, particularly for the trans people across our state that, that really face a terrific misunderstanding. And we will be there um, together to make sure we all get across the finish line. But big battle now is for the hearts and the minds. We won the law, and I, 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 I read uh, Marie Osmond's beautiful affirmation of her gay daughter on marriage and equality, and I sent a note to Marie saying, you know, we won the legal part. The people in black robes have spoken. Now we have to roll up our sleeves and win the battle, Utah by Utah, city by city, town by town, block by block. You, Marie, ought to help us uh, because you would be a great ambassador to so many places in Utah. So we keep up the fight legally. We keep up the fight morally. We have many uh, issues yet to be resolved. We've won a great victory. But we all need to learn how to respect and speak civilly with each other. And the LGBT community has got to now fight family by family and person by person to help everybody in the state understand that this is going to be good for the state. We'll we'll leave it there. State Senator Jim DeBacchus has joined us. Uh, Thank you so much. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Coming up following a break, we're going to uh, respond to the uh, decision itself. 
uh, take it apart a little bit legally and talk about some of the same issues we've been talking with Senator DeBacchus about with Lynn Wardle, who's Bruce C. Hafen, professor of law at Brigham Young University, and Clifford Roski, professor of law at University of Utah. We hope to hear from you. What's your reaction? 1-800-826-1495. What uh, needs to be done? What should be done in uh, response to the Supreme Court decision on Friday? Uh, legalizing uh, same-sex marriage nationwide. The number is 1-800-826-1495. You can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, and you can uh, reach us on Twitter as well. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Etched Magazine, an artistic expression of life in the Southwest. Celebrating the desert dwellers, adventure seekers, soul searchers, art lovers, and the culture creators who reside within the grandeur of the Great Southwest. More online at etchedmagazine.com. Imagine never being alone ever again. Imagine sharing your innermost thoughts with your best friend, a robot. When we construct robots, we are changing ourselves. We are changing what we are willing to consider a relationship. I'm Guy Raz, the promise and the peril of our robot overlords. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Science by the Slice. When discussing how one species evolved into two or more distinct species, scientists often surmise the uplift of mountains, which split populations of plants and animals, was a contributing factor. Not so fast, says USU entomologist James Pitts. You might expect this of desert species, where the terrain is typically isolated by mountain ranges. But for some organisms, he says, evidence points to glaciations that occurred during the Ice Age. A foremost scholar of wasps known as velvet ants, Pitts compared molecular data from modern-day ants with data collected from fossils and says the findings support the idea that relatively recent glacial action rather than ancient mountain formation led to new species. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu slash science. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams on the program today. We're acting to Friday's landmark decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, which in a 5-4 vote legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. And we uh, talked earlier in the program with State Senator Jim DeBacchus, also with Derek Kitchen, whose name is on the Kitchen v. Herbert case. Uh, where we bring in now uh, two law professors. We uh, welcome back to the program Lynn Wardle, Bruce C. Hafen, Professor of Law at Brigham Young University. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to come and participate. And we uh, welcome in uh, Clifford Roski, Professor of Law at University of Utah. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Let me start with Professor Wardle. Uh, what's your general reaction to, to the ruling? Do you, uh, what, what, do you think the, uh, the court got it right or, or not? Oh, no. The, it, it was not an unexpected ruling because of the politics of the, the court. Um, but it was a tragic uh, ruling uh, in three ways. One, the substance. Uh, legalizing same-sex marriage is going to have a profound and uh, I think very detrimental and distorting impact upon family life in America. Second, on the structure of our Constitution. Uh, the one thing is absolutely clear about the 
drafting of the Constitution in 1787, and that is the founders intended that questions like this, who should be allowed to marry, uh, would not be decided by any agency of the national government, but, but would be left for the states to decide for themselves. So this constitutes a pretty significant reallocation of the powers of government away from the states and to the federal government. And third, uh, an inappropriate exercise and abuse of uh, usurpation of power by the judiciary, that there is no branch of government that is less qualified to answer a question like who should be allowed to marry or should same-sex couples be allowed to marry, than the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, the Supreme Court has avoided deciding domestic relations issues, marriage regulation issues, with one major exception, and that is uh, we fought a civil war to guarantee racial uh, protections and any uh, racial equality to forbid the uh, discrimination by government on the basis of race and the Supreme Court effectuated that uh, constitutional amendment, the Civil War Amendments 13, 14, and 15, when it uh, decided Loving versus Virginia in 1967, striking down anti-miscegenation laws. But we have no similar constitutional consensus about same-sex marriage, and for the court to just on its own usurp the authority to decide that issue for the people taking the right away from the people in the various states is really a, a shocking and uh, illegitimate decision. Let me turn next to Professor Roski. What's your general reaction? Then we'll get into some of the points that Professor Wardle made. Well, my general reaction is simply that this is a great uh, day for gay Americans, uh, for all Americans, and for marriage itself, as the court um, made very clear uh, uh, the gay couples in these cases were not seeking to destroy um, or even transform the institution of marriage, but simply to participate in the same freedoms that all Americans already enjoy. Let me uh, turn back to Professor Wardle. I'd like to have you expand a bit on, on your first point, and then we'll get Professor Roski's uh, response. So a distorting impact, you say, on family life. Uh, how so? It, it, the redefinition of marriage is... Uh, is a very major policy and social life change in this country uh, to uh, convey the message that unions of a man and a woman uh, in marriage is no different than the uh, sexual union of two men or of two women simply brushes aside, minimizes, and diminishes the core elements of marriage that have made marriage so valuable to our society and uh, throughout uh, not just uh, generations and centuries, but throughout millennia to Western and uh, indeed uh, worldwide through society. So uh, you, you just can't change the core institution of society and think it won't have an effect on other people's lives. It will affect education, what children are taught in schools. It will affect religion as they're going to be greater religion, uh, religious liberty versus sexual liberty conflicts. And, and this isn't uh, just uh, some uh, bitter, you know, sour grapes reaction to the ruling. Uh, 
good scholars on both the left and the right have been predicting this for many years. Um, uh, I think it's Naomi Kahn in her book uh, published with Robin Fretwell Wilson uh, a couple of uh, years ago uh, said exactly that, that we're going to see more, and she's a supporter of gay marriage, but she said when that's legalized, we're going to see more conflict. And she was advocating that. She was saying, look, religious liberty is has uh, had the upper hand for for many decades, for centuries now. It's time for sexual liberty instead of religious liberty. It's time for sexual liberty to uh, have its predominance, and uh, religious liberty will have to be subordinated. Let me get a reaction from uh, Professor uh, Roski. What, what do you think? That an impact on family life? Uh, you see that as a negative impact or positive impact on family life? I, I, it's clearly going to have an impact on family life. The idea that there was no conflict until now, uh, for decades now, uh, same-sex couples have been seeking the right to marry. Uh, they go to the county clerk's office. Uh, why do they do this? They do this for the same reason that all Americans do. Uh, they love each other. They want to express that commitment um, uh, to each other and, and to the world. They want to take care of their children, earn a living, and raise a family together and enjoy all of the rights and take on the responsibilities of marriage. And they've been denied and excluded from that central institution of American life for decades. That's conflict, too. And that conflict, thankfully, has now come to an end. And now, well, you know, all this ruling requires is, uh, you know, a county clerk and a photocopier uh, to implement. Uh, and, and people can get back to, uh, you know, doing the laundry, going to work. These predictions about the sort of um, doomsday effects of same-sex marriage, uh, at, at this point, we can judge them uh, based on actual data. Same-sex marriage has been legal in Massachusetts for 12 years now, and none of the predictions that Professor Wardle has always um, said will attend the legalization of same-sex marriage have been realized. Uh, marriage rates um, either have gone up or have been constant, or the, the rate of divorce, none of this has actually uh, changed in any significant way um, uh, since the legalization of same-sex marriage. So um, that's an important thing to understand. And I think uh, the other thing is, Stay tuned. We'll see. I mean, today's Monday. Same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states. What's happening? What, what, what is the big disaster that's going to befall us? I think we've seen this again and again. It was already legal in 35 states. It's been legal in Utah, of all places, for more than a year now. And these predictions just have not come to pass. The other really important thing is that this is not the first or even the second time that the Supreme Court has recognize that states have defined marriage in ways that violate fundamental rights. One was interracial marriage, which was banned in many, many states, um, and uh, a majority of states, and the Supreme Court found that unconstitutional. And another, which Professor Wardle did not mention, is the doctrine of coverture, which for many, many years said that once a woman got married, she essentially disappeared as a legal citizen, couldn't own property, couldn't keep her wages couldn't keep custody of her children upon divorce. Um, her, she essentially became part of her husband. And the Supreme Court held that that, although common when the Constitution was adopted, was a violation of women's fundamental rights. We, If you've just joined us, we're talking with uh, two law professors. We're getting a reaction to the landmark decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, which was handed down on Friday. 
which legalizes same-sex marriage in all 50 states. We're talking with Clifford Roski, professor of law at University of Utah, and Lynn Wardle, who is Bruce C. Haven professor of law at Brigham Young University. And we hope to talk with you. You can call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us at our email, upraxis at gmail.com. Love to know your reaction. Uh, and you can uh, join us on Twitter as well. Uh, so let me turn back to uh, Professor Wardle. Uh, I'd like to hear maybe you expand on uh, how you think you've talked about uh, you, you believe this will have a negative impact on family life, this ruling. Uh, how do you think that will is likely to manifest itself as uh, over time? Well, we've already seen it uh, in other states. Uh, Cliff, uh, Professor Roski refers to Massachusetts, and which was the first uh, state in this country to uh, legalize same-sex marriage again by judicial mandate. Uh, a state supreme court ruled that way. Interesting how judges are the ones who are forcing same-sex marriage on the people of this country. Uh, there have been votes um, in 31 states. Uh, the people have voted to adopt constitutional amendments uh, forbidding same-sex marriage. Uh, there's one state where the people voted to legalize same-sex marriage. 31 to 1 is uh, about the ratio. And then there are several states there where the legislatures did that, I think 11 states. So uh, there, there, maybe it's 10 states plus that one, 11. But uh, we're seeing... a. First of all, I think uh, Cliff would agree with me or could agree with me, I don't know if he will, that uh, it's highly inappropriate for the Supreme Court to be making these kinds of decisions where there's no textual allocation of authority to the court to decide family law, domestic relations issues. Um, I can give the example of Massachusetts that he referred to. In Massachusetts, the, uh, uh, because they could not get an exemption, uh, the Catholic Social Services shut down their adoption agency. They've been placing children uh, uh, in need of parents with uh, poor families, uh, Catholic families, for 101 years until they were driven out of business when same-sex marriage was legalized. That's occurred also in other states. And uh, even my own faith, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, has gotten out of the adoption business uh, for exactly... Uh, uh, for the obvious reason. They don't want to place children into homes with same-sex parents, especially when there are homes, other homes available for them. And yet uh, the trend of these rulings has been very plain and very clear. Uh, in Sweden, um, a minister was prosecuted uh, for hate speech when he quoted from the Bible uh, descriptions of, of, of homosexual behavior as an abomination to the Lord. And so he was publicly prosecuted for hate speech, convicted. Fortunately, when it got to the Supreme Court of Sweden, his conviction was reversed. But until then, he was going to jail. Um, so it, it's a little naive and uh, sort of uh, taking a blind eye to the facts to say this isn't going to have an impact on what people do or what people can say. It will have an impact on adoption, on education, on, even on parenting, uh, as it has in other countries where same-sex marriage has been legalized. But I might add one more thing. Of 193, 193 sovereign nations in the world, there are now only 18, counting the United States, that, has, have, that allow same-sex marriage. 
Uh, there are two or three others that probably will come online. Ireland had a vote, unless that's somehow overturned. They'll be number 19 in a few months. And a couple of other European nations, I think Slovenia and Finland, are uh, likewise considering. But again, we're talking about, what, 10% or so of all of the nations of the earth. 90% of the nations of the earth simply do not uh, recognize this uh, redefinition of marriage that has such profound, potentially detrimental uh, consequences for society. Professor Roscoe, your your response to, to this? Well, you know, there's a lot in there to respond to. Um, I, I guess the one the general point to make is that law is not math. We don't simply count the number of countries or even, in all cases, the number of votes uh, in order to decide what the law is. Uh, the founders uh, agreed um, in our Constitution that there are some fundamental rights that shall not be infringed. The Supreme Court has now said 14 times, um, beginning in 1967, that marriage is one of those fundamental rights. Um, in support of uh, that principle, the court has struck down state laws that banned uh, uh, people of color from marrying whites, inter banned interracial marriage. It has also struck down many laws that, as I said earlier, would deny women rights as soon as they were married. That if a woman wanted to marry, she had to give up many basic rights, such as the right to earn a living. Um, why? Because, as the court has said many times, fundamental rights are not subject to a vote. The majority doesn't get to vote on whether or not we should violate people's fundamental rights, because, of course, the majority would commonly vote to deny basic rights to minorities. That's just the nature of uh, democracy. Uh, using examples from places like Sweden that does not have a First Amendment that protects freedom of speech and the free exercise of religion is just not very helpful. Um, but I still think even in that case, it's worth asking how many days that uh, individual spent in jail. Um, it sounds like the answer is zero uh, because uh, the conviction was overturned. In this, uh, certainly in this country, uh, no preacher has ever been convicted for what they said from the pulpit, because everyone understands that that violates the First Amendment. Uh, the United States of America has never looked to what 90% of countries are doing to determine basic things like our liberty uh, and our equality under our Constitution. We are proud to be a leader in the protection of human rights, and I think this decision advances that ideal. I want to turn next to uh, this idea of a religious liberty, and we that was debated uh, last legislative session, and the two bills came out that were seen in many eyes as being paired, anti-discrimination bill for the LGBT community and religious liberty. And now some churches, of course, are, are speaking out and are worried um, now that the, the court has ruled um, you know, against what they believe to be, to be right. Let me... Uh, pose this first to Professor Roski. Do you think religious liberty laws are, are going to be needed going forward? No, I think that we already have in Utah some of the strongest protections for religious liberty of any state in the country. Um, I think it's really important to understand that our anti-discrimination laws protect people's religious liberty. So, for example, you can't be fired from a job evicted from your home or denied services by any business based on your religion. 
most of us in our lives are employees, tenants, or homeowners, or um, customers and businesses. That's that's the role most of us play in everyday life. Most of us don't own businesses. And the best way to protect our religious liberty is to stop discrimination against us based on our religion. Uh, and so those laws are in place. Uh, we have, of course, um, the First Amendment under the federal Constitution and very strong religious freedom protections under the Utah Constitution. And uh, there is simply, uh, there are no cases uh, in which uh, people are alleging that their religious liberties have been violated in Utah, so I don't see any need for any further protections. Um, it's really important to understand that a lot of people are now misusing the term religious liberty. What they mean is they think that religion gives them a license to discriminate and a, an excuse uh, to not to decide, pick and choose which laws they follow. Uh, and so if one person says, well, I don't want to cater same-sex weddings, uh, you know, another person um, could say, I don't want to cater interfaith weddings. I don't want to cater interracial uh, weddings. And, uh, you know, if a doctor can say, I won't perform um, uh, help two lesbians conceive, another might say, I don't treat gay men who have HIV. There's a slippery slope problem here. Traditionally, religious liberty protects us from discrimination, but it doesn't give us the right to harm other people. Uh, Professor Wardle, what, what do you think on this, uh, this issue? Religious liberty laws needed? Well, certainly uh, religious liberty is uh, at risk, and uh, we've seen examples, as I've given you, the religious uh, adoption agencies that have been driven out of business, shut down, forced to move, or simply uh, stop doing adoptions altogether uh, because their liberty to change uh, to to exercise their religious belief that children should, whenever possible, be raised with a mom and a dad, uh, has been denied uh, by the uh, advancement of, of uh, the, the plethora of rights attendant to the gay marriage march. Um, and Sweden um, certainly does not have the U.S. Constitution, but Sweden has been held up as probably the world's leading example of a tolerant nation. And if a nation with the history of tolerance that Sweden have can, has can be so intolerant to the expression of speech, uh, we've already seen people that are being punished for their speech. Uh, certainly, um, uh, we saw, what a, uh, I don't remember what faith, a Protestant uh, uh, minister up in Idaho um, uh, who did not want to issue marriage license to same-sex couples was in trouble and uh, threatened with prosecution uh, uh, by the, uh, got a call from, I don't know if it was the state attorney general or whatever state agency. Uh, so we're seeing intimidation, coercion, and uh, persecution. Uh, it's early days now. We're, we'll see a whole lot more in the next year or five years because that's the trend. Um, uh, and I'm you know, referring to the book uh, Same-Sex Marriage and Religious Liberty by Douglas Laycock. Anthony Piccarello and Robin Fretwell Wilson, who uh, state very clearly that they see conflict between religious liberty and sexual liberty, or at least uh, some of the chapters in that book uh, uh, so state. So, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't uh, advance the discussion to simply uh, ignore the problems that are occurring and say, well, no, those are not really problems because. Uh, they haven't happened to me or uh, in my neighborhood. They will happen. They are happening. 
that other people have already experienced. Uh, but religious liberty um, is in, uh, indelibly uh, infused with uh, issues of sexual morality. Uh, a lot of our notions of what is sexually appropriate and inappropriate are based on and derived from religious traditions, uh, Judeo-Christian uh, and other religious traditions that inform us about what is um, moral and immoral in sexual behavior. And marriage is, of course, the premier institution for regulating and channeling sexual, sexual behavior. Um, so now that we've redefined marriage, uh, the scope of what is deemed to be appropriate is going to be implicated. We just have a couple minutes left. I just want to give uh, each of you uh, just a, a you know thirty seconds uh, for a final statement here on on your reaction to the Supreme Court uh, ruling, uh, Professor Roski. First, what's, uh, what's your summing you know, up? It, this is it's a difficult conversation because we're touching on many issues, and, and, and um, but this is now the second time that uh, Professor Wardle has suggested that the LDS Church has withdrawn LDS Family Services has withdrawn from the adoption business because it doesn't want to perform same-sex adoptions. I don't know if he's authorized to speak for the LDS Church. My understanding was that they got out of the adoption business for very different reasons uh, in order to focus on the wonderful uh, counseling that they do uh, for people uh, struggling with uh, drug and, and substance abuse addiction and, and other issues. Um, I have never heard the Church state that it withdrew from the adoption business um, because it didn't want to uh, place children with same-sex couples is not my understanding of what happened. But again, we should call the church for that. Uh, with respect to the Idaho case, uh, again, it's very important to understand this is not a minister who, in his ministerial capacity, uh, was uh, being asked to perform same-sex weddings or issue marriage licenses. Of course, uh, ministers don't issue marriage licenses at all. That's what the county clerk does. Uh, but um, this was a man who although he was a minister, also had a commercial business where people could get married and was making uh, money off that business and um, refused to uh, comply with a city ordinance that he served all couples uh, who wanted to participate in his services. It's a very different uh, thing. The idea that your religious liberty not only protects what you do, say, as a minister or as a worshiper, but also uh, how you make a buck in the public marketplace is just not the traditional definition of what religious liberty includes. It's a very important. People are really misusing this idea of religious liberty to give a license to discriminate. And I think that's what we'll see more of, unfortunately, in the next couple of years. Uh, Professor Ward will give you the, the final word, just a minute left. Well, thank you uh, for uh, inviting us to participate in this discussion on air. And I think it's valuable to have these discussions. Uh, it will help us to understand uh, not only points of agreement, but points of disagreement, and uh, make the transition to the future easier because we are talking about it. Uh, I'm very disappointed with the ruling and with the Supreme Court's ruling. I think the court far exceeded its authority. It went beyond the authority that was properly uh, allocated to it by the founders and in our Constitution, and it simply is usurped and overreached in, in an egregious way. I think people can agree about that regardless of whether they like or dislike the merits of the, uh, the decision the court has made. But on the merits, I think that it will have a profoundly detrimental impact 
on society, on families, on education, on children. Uh, and I think that's been the record where it has happened and what is, of what has happened in other jurisdictions that have gone down this path. So I think this is a very, very sad day, and uh, I'm glad that we have the chance to discuss it and think about how we can uh, take steps to minimize the damage and to, um, to reduce the detrimental impact. Um, I appreciate uh, uh, Professor Roski for engaging in this discussion. I have great respect for him. Uh, and uh, we just disagree about the, the merits of what is best and the merits of, of this particular branch or agency of government, the Supreme Court, uh, deciding this issue. It should be for the people of each state to decide for themselves. And the court has blundered badly. I think this will go down in our uh, in our legal history as the equivalent to Roe versus Wade, one of these huge blunders, Dred Scott versus Sanford, Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, Roe versus Wade, and now Obergefell versus Hodges will be sort of landmark decisions where the court really uh, messed up and has caused problems that have left the country uh, struggling to deal with them for 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 many years. Well, we'll uh, of course, continue this discussion. Uh, go to upr.org with your comments, and upraxcess at gmail.com is the email. Uh, we thank Lynn Wardle, uh, Bruce C. Hafen, Professor of Law at Brigham Young University. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on the program. And Clifford Roski, Professor of Law at University of Utah. Thank you very much to you. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. And uh, we hope that you'll uh, keep those comments coming. As I said, upraxis at gmail.com is the email. Tomorrow, we're going to look at uh, cool new car technology, driverless cars, electric cars. And on Wednesday, we'll take a look at race in America and respond to the shootings course in Charleston. We'll be talking with the Reverend France Davis from Calvary Baptist Church in Salt Lake City. Those programs coming up. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Oyster Ridge Music Festival, July 24th through 26th, just 90 minutes, from Logan and Ogden in Kemmer, Wyoming. Bands include Guthrie Brown and the Family Tree, Dead Winter Carpenters, and Jared and the Mill. Information is at OysterRidgeMusicFestival.com. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Few among us would choose to eat a steak with a spoon or soup with a fork. And in the world of birds, it's the same story. You need the right tool for the right job, and you can tell a lot about a bird by paying attention to its beak. Physiologically, beaks are a specialized extension of the skull and are coated in keratin, the same material that makes up our fingernails. And like our fingernails, the cutting edges of the beak can be regrown as they are worn down by use. Birds use beaks for a multitude of tasks, including preening, weaving nests, and defending territories. However, it is the task of eating that seems to dictate beak shape and size. Envision the hummingbird, for instance. Its long, thin beak and corresponding tongue is designed to reach deep into flowers to collect the nectar within. A hummingbird beak would not work for a woodpecker or a great horned owl. Likewise, an eagle's beak needs to be sharp and strong for tearing flesh and wouldn't suit the lifestyle of an ibis or a sparrow. One Utah native, the aptly named Crossbill, 
has one of the most unique beaks around. When closed, its curved top and bottom bills overlap crossways in what looks like an awkward and uncomfortable pose. French naturalist Count Buffon first laid eyes on a crossbill in the mid-1700s. The bird was collected in the Americas, then shipped abroad for examination. Without observing the crossbill in its natural habitat, Buffon labeled its beak an error and defect of nature and a useless deformity. More than 50 years later, Scottish-American naturalist Alexander Wilson observed a crossbill in the wild and determined that its beak deformity was in reality a magnificently adapted tool. The crossbill's diet consists mainly of the seeds of conifer trees, and it turns out that the bird's curiously crossed beak is perfectly adapted to prying apart the scales of pine cones to get at the seeds within. Members of the finch family, these birds are often seen in flocks and occasionally visit backyard feeders. They are easily identified by their unique beaks, which serve as a reminder that the right tool for the right job can sometimes seem a bit unconventional. This is Andrea Liberator. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu.